Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, a weekly interview show about art, craft, and creativity. This episode of Craft Sanity is sponsored by Nostalgems, an online jewelry shop featuring kits and finished pieces. Check out this heirloom-style charm jewelry at nostalgems.etsy.com and visit craftsanity.com this week for information about a Valentine's Day-themed Nostalgems giveaway. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 93 of the Craft Sandy podcast. This is an interview that I just recorded on Wednesday. This show is dedicated to the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act. And I know a lot has changed since Wednesday even, so this has kind of been an evolving show. I know most of you are well aware that the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act is a law that affects all businesses producing goods for children under age 12. And primarily this is you know handmade toy makers, but also kids' books, clothing, basically anything that comes in contact with a kid. I wrote a column about this last week, and I definitely wanted to kind of stray from the format of the show and do a podcast that would explain a little bit about the law and the impact it would have on handmade businesses. So I invited Walter Olson to kind of help translate the CPSIA into English. He's been doing a great job of that over on his blog, overlawyer.com, and first captured my attention with a couple pieces he wrote for Forbes on this topic. I'll have links to his blog and the articles on craftsanity.com, so you can check those out if you haven't read them already. So, as I said, we recorded this interview on Wednesday, January 28th, and then on Friday, January 30th, the Consumer Product Safety Commission issued a one-year stay of enforcement that will really postpone that massive crackdown of many of the testing requirements for another year. So, while that's great news, it doesn't solve the problem. And because at first I'm like, okay, great. You know, that this is all taken care of. I don't have to, you know, I won't even produce this podcast. So I won't worry about it. Well, after sending an email over to Walter and kind of thinking about this, this postpones some of the testing, but it doesn't mean that it won't happen. So keep in mind as you're listening that it was recorded before Friday's stay of enforcement. However, a lot of the issues that are outlined in the language of the law those things still will hold true unless these things are changed in the next year. After I heard about Friday's news, I had a little email exchange with a spokesperson for the commission, and I was asking about testing and what the requirements were now. He said that there's still testing and certification requirement for lead paint, small parts on toys and children's metal jewelry, and other products which may not impact crafters. I had written about a children's clothing maker here in town who was anticipating having to spend $700 on component testing and asked, well, does she still have to test for lead and other toxins? And the response was that these people who make clothes don't have to test, but using the XRF and the snaps and zippers would be a wise move. The fabric testing sounds like that's still pending as they're still looking at what exemptions can be finalized for the materials used in apparel. And this is a quote. In the end, though, all children's products must have less than 600 ppm of lead come February 10th. There's still a lot of confusion out there, and I unfortunately was not able to get an interview recorded with someone from the commission. I made some attempts and was not successful. So my apologies on that front. But I thought Walter would do a great job, and he did, of just a kind of explaining things. So I'm going to let him tell you a little bit more about himself and what he does, and we'll get right into that discussion. My name is Walter Olson. I'm senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a think tank in New York, and I'm a blogger 
uh, I started Overlawyered, which is the oldest blog on law anywhere in the world that anyone knows of, uh, about 10 years ago. And I've also got a, a couple of other blogs, uh, like Point of Law. Uh, I live in Chappaqua, New York, just north of New York City, uh, most famous as the hometown of uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton. And I uh, have written several books about the legal system and have been writing for even longer than that about government regulation and the unintended consequences that it has, uh, which is one reason I got interested in uh, this law when I started looking at it. Well, and I thought, based on your credentials, that you were... um basically overqualified to talk about <laughs> to talk talk about this I'm not so sure because this is a very complicated law and I think um, you can have people who practice this kind of law for a living when I'm, I'm not a lawyer and, and even they are baffled by some of the complications that Congress built in yeah well I do appreciate your willingness to, to join me this evening for a talk because I think one of the big problems with consumer product safety improvement act is that it's as you said it's so complicated and a I mean, there are a lot of you know, crafters and people with homemade businesses um, that are just, some people are just cluing into this because they didn't realize that it was going to impact them. And and, and with good reason, because there's a lot to, to, to freak out. Oh, yeah, definitely. Work in this area. And, you know, when I first approached it, I thought uh, these members of Congress, again, passing something uh, when they could just could have sat down and read it. And, and then I began sitting down and reading it, and I realized it's written in such a way it doesn't help to sit down and read it because it's full of, uh, you know, we're changing uh, uh, you know, this number here and, and adding three words to that clause. And unless you are sitting down with a cross-reference to the other laws that it affects, it's hard to make head or tail of it. I kind of have hesitated to even link from my blog to the government website because every time I look at the, that website, I'm just like, I cannot really understand what's going on here. And um, so I think I've been helped and better served by the commentary that's been out there to kind of have people help navigate through. These regulatory agencies, you know, year in and year out, by and large, the only people that uh, they really deal with are the lawyers who come around and uh, because you know, people in heavily regulated areas like um, producing drugs or foods or, or other other products like that, they don't even try to understand by looking at the law. They just hire lawyers to, to deal with it. This is not something that you ever expected to have to do if your job is to knit sweaters for babies. Uh, it's one thing to be making, um, it, you know, the big factory runs of, of some sort of drug to be used. In right, uh, right. You can afford to have lawyers on your payroll. You definitely can't if you're making, let's say, origami paper. Uh, right. I mean, these people can't even afford to have someone help them, you know, package up the things. I, I've t- interviewed several people who say, you know, I'm a one person operation and they don't have a legal department, you know. So that is when, you know, if we can maybe start at like ground zero here and just kind of say, OK, you know, um, we're obviously in, in kind of an awful mess, the craft community now. Can you maybe just shed some light on how it got to this point? There's a slogan I have, uh, legislate in haste, repent at leisure. You get some of the most sweeping laws when there is a panic about something, and especially a panic involving children. And we all kind of remember, uh, we may not have followed it very closely uh, last year, but uh, there were some new and genuine safety issues about toys that all seemed to happen at once. Uh, there was uh, lead paint on some toys from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple of other lead problems, in particular uh, jewelry that had been made with too much lead in it, if swallowed by kids, uh, could poison them. And there were also a couple of miscellaneous 
issues. There were uh, magnets. That yeah, the magnets. Uh, could be swallowed and, and pose a very genuine health issue. And uh, at the same time, the, uh, there, there were people pushing on issues like uh, phthalates, uh, the, these plastic softeners. Not clear that they were necessarily ca- causing harm, but that had been controversial for a while. And, and once one of these big laws begins to move, people pack extra things onto it. Uh, it would be one thing if they'd passed a relatively small law saying, okay, you know, to children's jewelry has to be made according to such and such standards, and uh, ma- you know, magnets have to be labeled or, or whatever. You know, just go down the list of things that had actually been causing problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, they said, no, no, um, you know, th- we're going to anticipate and prevent whatever the next problem is, even though no one knows what the next problem is, by regulating everything that comes in contact with children. Everything Which just sounds crazy. And, I mean, and by, by children, uh, you know, they weren't just concerning themselves with toddlers who grab things and put them in, in their mouths. Uh, they went all the way up to age 12. So you, you get a, a law that, even at its best, even if you're talking about things that might have lead in them, is, is regulating the zippers on size 10 winter coats, uh, you know, th- th- all sorts of things that are not in practice ever swallowed by toddlers. Right, right. And so... Th- this head of steam built up. Um, uh, by the time the law was moving, everyone in Congress, with a very few exceptions, wanted to be seen as doing the right thing and caring about children, and, and no one was going to vote against it. It was almost unanimous in both houses. And at that point, and given that uh, the way Congress does things is to turn things over to a committee, which then itself turns things over to a very small number of legislators who will actually take an interest in it. Sometimes it's only the staff people. Uh, what do the staff people do? The staff people uh, have no idea uh, generally how to draft a law, and they turn to the outsiders. So I do not know for sure the way we got the law, but it is very likely that it was drafted by someone who does not work for Congress at all. Oh, brother. By one of the consumer groups. Uh, there are four or five big ones uh, who all supported it, and one of them uh, probably had their lawyer or lawyers draw it up. And so what you get in the case of a, a law that follows a panic is sometimes the writing of the law is handed over to someone who only sees one side of the issue, you know, isn't familiar with the cost side of the cost-benefit uh, balance, but just thinks, uh, you know, if we went even further, might we not prevent some further accident? And so, someone once said that if you thought that way about bathtubs, the, the worst conceivable accident involving bathtubs would be to have the entire population of the world line up one at a time, fallen and drown. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we have common sense about bathtubs, so we realize that even though there are some accidents about them, uh, they also have to work and, and they have to be cheap enough so that everyone can have one. And so right, right. And somehow or other, that common sense was was lost when they gave it to to some unnamed lawyer to, to, to draft. And so we got a, a, a law that overreaches both in covering both the relatively small number of high-risk products and then the, the huge number of products that have never hurt anyone and are not going to hurt anyone uh, through poisoning. And uh, then uh, not just setting very low levels for finding a, a problem like lead in them and, and uh, in general with metal alloys that you find in all sorts of uh, you know bat- battery-driven products and so forth, they, mm-hmm. found they couldn't eliminate the lead, so they began having to make exceptions for that. But, but beyond that, requiring testing of things uh, that uh, in any uh, situation that you and I will ever run into are not going to have dangerous amounts of lead, the, the fabric things and the, the paper things. Uh, 
which unless we are importing them from very, some very strange uh, source uh, in a very distant country, uh, there is no reason to worry about lead poisoning for, for most of the things that the crafters use that are, are domestically made and, and locally sourced and all that sort of thing. So they require the testing, and uh, they thought, I guess, that they would appear reasonable if they phased things in. That's part of the confusion uh, of the law is that uh, there are like six different uh, dates at which new things come into effect. Readers may or may not have heard the numbers, but they are pretty horrifying. The, the more components you have, um, the more the testing is going to cost because they each have to be tested separately. So uh, you see, um, not that uncommon for even a fairly simple child's product to have 40 different components. Uh, if, if you've got a snap on one part of it, uh, and you've got exactly the same snap at another part, then you might not have to test it twice. But if it's at all different, uh, even if it's made of the same material, even if it's uh, eight different panels of fabric and they're each in a different color yarn, then, yeah, you've got to test them all separately because uh, you never know what's behind the rock. You know, the first seven dyes might not have lead, but the you know, maybe the blue-green one does have lead. That's wow. Wow. They're extra overprotective logic for yeah, <laughs> you know, test every different color yarn that you're using in, in, in the thing. And that's where things get crazy for people. I know I, I just interviewed a woman for a column I wrote over the weekend that she has a skirt that, you know, a little girl's skirt, and she normally sells it for $32. She was estimating that she'd have to raise her price uh, to accommodate $770 worth of testing that would go into, you know, if she made a lot of 12 skirts, she'd have to sell them for $96 each. And in this economy, it's going to be really hard to find a buyer of a, of a toddler-sized skirt that they're going to pay $96 for. It, it just destroys the economics of it unless you are a mass production factory line exactly. producer. And that is crazy in itself, and it's also ironic because if you look at the uh, original scares of uh, many of which came from Chinese mass production factory lines, right? Uh, you, <laughs> it turns out that they're they're going to be the last survivors uh, after uh, this law when. Uh, they were the ones that um, were careless in the first place. Right. And the big companies can afford the testing, as you said, you know, when you're in your basement making skirts for little children, um, you know, you know where everything's coming from. You know, if you if you make it and you know where you got your sources from and a lot of the um, crafters have started to contact the manufacturers and the suppliers asking for the testing that's done. And is that going to I mean, is that going to be of any benefit to anybody to have that paperwork? Are you advising people to do that? The paperwork is just beginning because the retailers, and of course even a small crafter can have hopes of uh, getting a line into a, a medium-sized retailer mm-hmm. and uh, becoming successful that way, but the retailers are covering themselves by demanding lots of paperwork. These complications would be enough to make a big hassle even if you could afford the testing. Mm-hmm. That's why... You know, there, there are some major things that they could do you know, if they would only institute once-for-all component testing, or better yet, uh, if you've got any halfway decent trusted source of the component, if they could only test the component before you get it, and then you just sort of bundle together the paperwork mm-hmm. uh, with anything that you add, you know, you're having to vouch for. Even if you did all that, it would add a lot of paperwork to uh, what is often a kitchen table kind of business, and, and that is part of the tragedy, because even if they solve the testing problem, the paperwork problem is going to be around people's necks. Right. 
What is the government going to do, though, if someone is continuing to sell their stuff on Etsy? Um, is there going to be, I mean, because I know the lawmaker, you know, I talked to last week, I talked to Vern Ehlers, you know, from Michigan here from Grand Rapids. And, um, you know, he he said, well, you know, the police aren't going to be out arresting people. However, I know most crafters don't. And they tend to be law-abiding citizens, you know, by and large, you know, and they, no one feels real comfortable, like, having a home-based business is in violation of federal law. So, you know. They're, they're totally right not to feel comfortable because um, in the first place, uh, if I may uh, get opinionated for a minute, the government owes us a set of laws that can actually be c- complied with. Uh, right, right. Uh, they, uh, well, that's part of their responsibility. That's what we send them there for, is to give us something coherent enough so that if we try, we can be in compliance. With right, the right. But beyond that, it is dangerous. You know, there's... <clears throat> You hear some of these groups like Consumer Reports poo-pooing the law, saying, oh, well, you know, if everyone enforcing it will be reasonable. And it makes it sound like it's uh, going 60 miles an hour and 55 miles an hour zone. That's not really true. In the first place, there are paper trails of all of these things. If you have sold it uh, and you can't produce the paperwork, you can be forced to account for yourself by the various parties that can enforce the law uh, and they include, at a minimum, the 50 state attorneys general. Now, the state attorneys general are a group that always includes some people you know, hungry for headlines who enjoy uh, going after out-of-state defendants um, and uh, saying, you know, you sent something into my state that uh, was in violation of the law. I'm going to sue you and, and get a settlement. And incidentally, in these settlements, they make the business people, even sometimes very small business people, pay for the lawyers who work in the attorney general office. Part of the settlement is, yeah, pay $10,000 uh, for the privilege of having been investigated by the oh my goodness. office. So it becomes a, a bit of a profit center and a you know, revolving revenue source because they can get the, the businesses that they do enforcement actions against to pay uh, the budgets uh, for hiring their, their lawyers. And, you know, you can have 45 reasonable state attorneys general, but the other five are enough to make you very sorry that you uh, allowed that paper trail to, to develop of selling goods that you didn't have the certificates for. Uh, beyond that, Etsy and eBay are both businesses that have to protect their own interest. And one of the ways that I understand that both of them are protecting their own interest is by requiring certification of people selling the categories of goods that they're in compliance. So you may have broken a contract with them, and if they get in trouble and have to pay money to the attorneys general, they may say, you know, I, I only got in trouble because you broke your contract. Right. With me. You've got to share what, what we're paying out to the California attorney general or whoever it is. Now, has Etsy and eBay, have they announced that that's a requirement? Is that come? Because I, I know people are really... announcement, but I've seen... Um, enough coverage on, on both of those that unless the coverage is mistaken, I mean, I've seen people at, at the various forums and so forth say, say that those changes are in the works. Okay. If, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. They've got lawyers uh, trying to... Oh, well, they can't afford They can't afford to violate the law. Just like, I mean, just like the personal crafter can't, you know, individual crafter can't afford yeah. to break the law. Yeah. Well, and also, they are deep pocket targets. So oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one thing to uh, say it's going to take a long time before the local craft store or the, or the uh, small-run crafter is, is, is the target. But uh, eBay and Etsy are big enough targets that it would make uh, substantial headlines for some attorney general to go after them. And they're going to be among the very first places, uh, along with the big retailers, that uh, the ambitious politicians are, 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 will, will look at 
as far as an, an easy score on enforcement. Can you imagine the headline, like, you know, a rogue group of knitters, you know, arrested, I mean, in the slammer, you know? I mean, it just... There's a bit of history here, which is that it used to be uh, down through, I can't remember where it ended, maybe 15, 20 years ago, but it used to be that home knitting of, of sweaters for sale was unlawful, not on grounds of consumer safety, but on labor laws. They had various laws against home knitting. It didn't reach the crafter who just sold herself, but uh, reached people a, a little bit bigger off uh, who like, t- took their sweaters to a, a local uh, tourist-oriented store and uh, said, you know, but buy, buy our ski sweaters. Away. Oh, I see. They had people knitting for them, and then they um, would take... They, well, they, they would say you are... Uh, Knitting for uh, the retailer, even if it was your oh, okay. and it was okay. just the retailer who who agreed to carry the one, uh, they would say, "Well, uh, you're you're in uh, commerce here. You're violating labor laws by having at home uh, uh, knitting." That controversy went on for decades. Well, what was the basis of that? What what um, was someone like in an abusive force knitting situation or something or what? <laughs> and the history of the garment trades included some situations where. Uh, very poor people uh, were given work to do in, in uh, uh, home circumstances. Okay. And there really was, you know, that people would give them a, a sewing machine or whatever, and, and they would say. So, you know, it's not, it was not completely imaginary that there might be. So there actually were some abuses going on. And what... uh, well, that, back when they introduced the law, like in the 1920s or so. Okay. However, by, by the time uh, they phased out the law, you know, there may still be controls on actual factory conditions at home, but, but there were uh, enforcement actions against people who really were just knitting sweaters at home, and they, they were doing it uh, because they knew that there was a local outlet. I think the biggest case was in Vermont, and it was just people you know, with craft skills doing it, not uh, downtrodden. Uh, immigrants living in, in <laughs> people chained to a regular, chair. Regular, yeah. Regular knitting. Oh chair. my goodness. You know, one of the problems is that in Washington, you've got uh, a lot of people represented in business community and labor community and the others who know that they can survive almost any set of rules because they are big, well-capitalized, you know, companies or retailers or unions or whatever. And it's easy for the interests of the little producers to fall through the cracks because, um, you know, no one in particular is looking out for them. And I'm not saying that there ought to be a lobby for crafters. It would be kind of sad if uh, that <laughs> turned into just another part of K Street lobby. Yeah. With, yeah. Without it, there is often no one speaking up at the meeting saying, by the way, you might not have realized this is going to put tens of thousands of people out of business who had been supporting their family and, and having fun and, and getting the joy of creativity by you know participating in some small way in, 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 in this business. What can the crafters do to get attention? Because obviously, you know, they, we don't have a lobby group. And... Well, I think they're doing a lot of the right things as it is. If someone was asking me on Twitter this afternoon, you know, who should we be trying to get to cover this in the media? And I, I know people of a lot of publications, and I've been hearing stories from journalists who tried to pitch this as a story to various prestigious East Coast publications, and, and, and they got blown off saying, oh, no one cares about that. You know, go, go away. It's, uh, we need something that uh, uh, you know, is, is, is of interest to everyone. You, you know, I've, that's happened just locally, too. I mean, it's not – no one's really biting on the story. And, um, you know, and I'm kind of dangerously close. I mean, I don't even try to even make – pretend like I'm totally unbiased on this issue because, you know, I'm a crafter myself. And, but it's just amazing to me that people aren't concerned about this. But that is 
no reason to give up, though, for, for uh, the following reason. First, people do pay attention to the book in the library people. And mm-hmm. uh, I noticed that Congress, uh, or in particular, uh, Mr. Uh, Waxman and Mr. Rush, uh, immediately got off their chairs and tried to, uh, to buy off the children's book people because the, the book business is kind of dangerous for them because it's only one jump away from thousands of different authors. <laughs> and ch- children's books authors are just the, the beginning of it. So they, they, um, they did not want to have the library people going after them in, in the newspapers. That's, that's one thing. However, our local newspaper here, the, the New York Times, has been particularly bad on this. It ran many thoughtless pieces uh, cheering on the original legislation uh, and not raising the right questions. And then since it passed, it has run essentially nothing, and it has run no coverage whatsoever. Uh, I don't think it's going to get to the head of the editorial people and the national news people right away that they need to cover this. I think the place where it should hit is in the style section. You know, the New York Times covers the, the garment trade and the fashion trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they write about handcraft, you know, quite well, often, too. And, and at some point, there are going to be enough people on 7th Avenue who realize, wait a minute, you know, what is the wellspring of new ideas? Uh, it is not just Paris designers. It's, uh, you know, there are thousands of people out there experimenting with fun, you know, way, new ways of designing kids' products. And every so often, one of them is, is so great and becomes popular, and, and then it becomes a... Uh, uh, 7th Avenue uh, item, you know, it, it, it's got to sink in to some of those people in the style section that we are about to drown you know, this enormous bunch of creative people from whom you know, lots of ideas bubble up that uh, people wind up wearing in other countries uh, or playing with or whatever the, the product is. And around the country, there are the specialty children's retailers who were set up so that people would have a choice of something a little more interesting than mm-hmm. produced stuff. And they are the ones, they are the canaries in, in the coal mine because they're the ones who are hearing from lots of their producers, no, you know, there's no way that I can get my line into compliance. I, I've just, just checked the, the testing costs. And so these stores in, in different parts of the country have often begun announcing that they're not uh, going to stay in business. And... Uh, and that's a, just a tragedy. I'm sorry? That's a tragedy, you know. Oh, it's the, awful, yeah, because yeah. there's something you hear from people in the craft business again and again, which is that it's fun to be in, and it's a, a type of work that you can look forward to, to doing. And I'm reminded of a uh, what seems like a totally different area. I, I write about litigation uh, in general, and uh, if you talk to doctors, just about the most heavily sued group uh, are obstetricians because there'll be birth defects or mm-hmm. with, with childbirth. And it still haunts me. Uh, I've heard, you know, I went into obstetrics because it was supposed to be the happy branch of medicine where you, you know, you didn't have to always be explaining tragedy to people. And it's become, uh, you know, like you want to go into a bomb shelter, you know, when, when you went into it in the first place so that you could see smiles on people's faces. Right. And, it's supposed to be the happiest uh, day of people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and cra- crafting of all things uh, ought to be something that, um, you know, preserves the joy of, of, of creating something. By and large, you know, it's going to make the recipient happy, too. You know, it, it's an economic catastrophe, but it's also a catastrophe to treat this all as if people were somehow trying to poison their customers. That's not why anyone gets into this business. Do you think there's going to be, like, a black market for crafts and, like, people uh, <laughs> selling out of trunks and dark alleys? I've, I've wondered about that. I mean, where I think you would see that happen most is in the used and collectible market, because the thrift shops are facing 
very direct um, liability under the law. Uh, they don't have to test, but if they uh, put things on the shelves and they've got lead on them, uh, even if it's not a real hazard to anyone. And, and you would often find that in alloys, for example, rhinestones are said to be something that flunk often. And I'm not sure I have ever seen an instance of a kid swallowing a rhinestone. Usually they're sewn in tightly enough. Mm-hmm. From the thrift shop standpoint, uh, you really can't afford to have any of that stuff. And, and the metal alloys that you would find in bicycles and tricycles that were manufactured before then. So out, out they go. What, what will not go out is the stuff that is enough of an antique that people uh, will pay good money to collect it. And that, instead of being thrown into the landfills, will go underground. There'll be private collectors' clubs and things. What about the garage sale? If you want to have a garage sale and sell your kids old clothes, I mean, how is that going to be effective? Well, you know, I assume that the garage sales are going to uh, mostly go on. Uh, you know, I've heard stories about how uh, someone with a grudge could turn you in uh, or could, could you know, look around for the things with lead content, buy, buy them, and then you know, run and do a, a complaint against you. Uh, even the state attorney general is probably not going to go after you just for a garage sale. Uh, however, once people start getting frightened of things and, and once you see some level of enforcement at areas like thrift shops, uh, people get scared and rather than feel that they're taking some sort of risk, uh, it's easy to just throw the stuff out. And, uh, you know, that's one of the ironic environmental consequences of all of this is if, if you are looking for an impact to have on the environment, uh, recycling stuff that's still usable is usually very good. <laughs> um, leaving aside the relatively rare categories of kids' products that, that were causing uh, any of these uh, things, kids, you know, are at much more risk of hurting themselves in other ways. And in particular, if you make everyone pay $50 for a winter coat instead of going to a thrift shop where you can get them for 5 or $10, um, more kids will go cold. That's, mm-hmm. that's a risk of their health, too. And what else is it going to take, you think, for people well, to wake yeah. up and, and change this? I, I think, actually, there's a good chance that this will be heard. Um, it's crazy enough that uh, once they understand it, very few people are not on board with what the crafters want. However, there is still the question of what is... Uh, the end game, uh, as, as you might call it, not really the end game, but what is it that uh, we want Congress to do? And uh, someone searched a day or two ago to see whether anyone had submitted legislation to do a fix, and there is none. No, no one has any bill introduced in Congress that would fix it. And, and just briefly, there are about three things that um, could be done. Uh, there, uh, at one extreme, uh, which I think would be the sensible extreme. They could just repeal the thing and say, look, you know, we followed up. Uh, we can revisit the area and do a different kind of law that does make sense, but we're not going to try to uh, patch up this one because it's just too crazy. I wish they'd do that. I kind of doubt they'd do that. Uh, at the opposite end, they could just do a postponement and say, um, okay, I guess maybe this proceeded a little bit too fast, but push everything forward by six months or 12 months but not change the rules. And that would be a lot better than nothing. But on the other hand, all the craziness we've been talking about is still craziness if it happens. Right, right. <laughs> right, right. So, so it, what, if anything, is there in between those two? And uh, that is what we haven't really got people talking about yet. It, one idea that they certainly will want to look at is a size threshold. Um, uh, you know, don't worry about this unless you're producing at least a thousand items a year or unless you're producing at least a million dollars a year or something like that. And any thresholds of that sort are going to have uh, 
some unexpected consequences and some surprises. And one of them that was pointed out is, suppose they do a million dollars a year, and that does let most of the people off the hook, although there'd be a lot of uh, familiar sorts of toys and clothes that would disappear because they're being made by million-dollar companies that wouldn't be able to be economic then. But nonetheless, it would, it would get the small, small crafters off the hook. Uh, if you are a relatively successful um, person, your, your design has, has taken off uh, and has become popular, however, uh, it leaves you in the position of not wanting to grow big because right. let's say you you only realize in September that you're going to be a million dollar company that year. Do, you know, does all the stuff you produced in the first eight months become illegal or what? <laughs> it's very hard to solve these legal issues. So you have to go on vacation for the last quarter of the year. You know? Yeah, and, and in fact there are companies that do that because with employment law a lot of federal laws on how you treat your workforce kick in at 10 employees or 15 employees. So you've got the phenomenon of people deliberately holding their payroll down and turning away business so they don't have to hire the extra person or two. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, oh, geez. So you might see the same sort of thing with the more successful crafters who's, who are beginning to catch on and, 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 and hire people to help. Do you think that there would be you know any logical reason that they could just say, okay, if it's been tested, you bought it at Joanne's or your local fabric store, and not out of the trunk of some guy who hand dyed it in his, you know, wherever, you know, in a cave somewhere. Um, you know, I mean, do you think that is something that could be a solution? I think they could probably get something like that to work. I understand that Europe has uh, a system of lead certification, uh, which has not led to the craziness of uh, CAPTCHA. Uh, I haven't had a chance to check into how the European system works, but logically, uh, one certification should be enough. And if Joann's is going to certify its yarns uh, or, or the manufacturers who sell at, at Joann's, then uh, that really should do it. Uh, you know, only if you're adding something very distinctive of your mm-hmm. own should you have to uh, you know, add your own certification uh, instead of just making sure you've got them for the components. And again, these are the right sorts of questions to be asked. We can only wish they had asked them last year when they passed the bill. And mm-hmm. it's, what we're talking about doing is more like tearing up the bill and starting again. Right, uh, right. Than, than changing it. And why do you think it took so long for people to realize? I wish I knew. And part of it is the law is so opaque. You can look at the law and not really understand what it's trying to do. Uh, part of it is that I think people were uh, relying on, you know, they, they knew that there were some... Uh, uh, people from the manufacturing community looking at it, um, uh, uh, big toy companies, big retailers, and, and so forth, and, and they probably figured, well, if they've signed off on it, how bad can it be? Um, and uh, again, you know, for Hasbro, I, I don't know whether they specifically, but you know, or 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 Walmart or or Target to sign off on it. Uh, probably means that it's not so crazy that nothing can be sold, but it doesn't mean that it's it's not crazy from the standpoint of smaller producers. Right, right. Oh boy. Well, it's a fine mess that we're in, and this and this just kind of clicked down a list of the people that are affected by this because it's not just as you've mentioned the crafters. I mean, there's the, now. Did they make an exception now for books? Well, that's very much in the air because if there is an exception for books, it's going to come too late for anyone to really be sure. There's a 30-day notice and comment period. Uh, at the CPSC, as at many federal agencies. And uh, the guidance, uh, such as it was, from Congressman Waxman and Congressman Rush uh, was not very illuminating guidance because they said 
on one page, oh, we'd like an exception to be carved out for ordinary kids' books that don't have anything unusual in them. And, and because you know, part of the book market is, is play things that, that look like books but have you know moving parts and things. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the um, and then on the next page they say uh, ordinary children's books must not contain anything like metal or plastic in them. And so uh, <laughs> the, the obvious question is, do they realize or don't they realize uh, how many kids' books have staples in them? Hold them together. Oh, goodness, which would rule out every book. Oh, yeah, my it's, word. It's, so, like, children's it's, libraries. Right now, if you're a children's librarian, um, can the local library that is barely, in, mo- in many cities, barely able to, like, get nice new books on the shelf, you know, due to cutbacks and funding and all this. So are these, like, librarians and school librarians have to, like, worry now that the school could be held liable, the library could be held liable if there's a staple in a book? Well, the you know. American Library Association um, has said that, uh, yes, it uh, believes the law covers libraries. There, there's actually quite a bit of um, argument about this because they aren't selling something. Uh, and so some people have said, well, uh, you know, if, if they're not selling anything, uh, unless you count the uh, overdue funds, uh, uh, then, you know, maybe they're not retailers. Uh, and to come back to that is, well, but they are uh, storing and warehousing them, and, and there are provisions that sweep those guys in, too. Oh, goodness. And, uh, likewise with the school libraries. The schools are not selling books, uh, but uh, they believe that uh, it's um, uh, likely to cover them, and, and they've got lawyers who've looked at it, so I'm not going to argue with them. Uh, the the implications are just demented because uh, you know the the easy part of it is um, in the new acquisitions where of course they're going to be paying more uh, for kids books and they're going to um, uh, get fewer of them and and a lot of small um, uh, production run stuff is never never going to be published at all and in particular a lot of backlist stuff uh, you know it's one thing for a children's book publisher to be going to press for the first time and make sure that all the materials are compliant. Right. CAPTCHA, it's another thing to have a book that they published six years ago. Uh, who knows whether it's in compliance? Much easier to just trash the last 200 copies. And, and that's just ridiculous catalog. to think uh, of. The... So there's going to be a ma- massive uh, bonfire of uh, old inventory, not just in books, but in many, many, many different categories of, of things. But then you get to the question of what about the stocks of books that are already there? And uh, it looks on the face of it as if the library is going to be liable, uh, if anything, uh, maybe even including staples, in those old books uh, has too high lead content, uh, whether or not any child has ever swallowed a staple from a book and gotten poison from it. And so... Um, the options are all very unattractive. Uh, if they institute a testing program, and remember it has to be dissolve-type testing where the book is destroyed. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they the X-ray gun uh, August. You know, they, now through August, they could hold the X-ray gun and say, oh, good, uh, this... This uh, book is not toxic. Twins does not have blood content. And then in August, after they have August, to say, let's burn it just to make sure. Yeah, after, after August, they're going to have to dissolve the old Bobsy Twins books. Oh, uh, good. What do they dissolve it in? One at a time in order to make sure that, uh, and of course, typically they've only got one copy of each old book. So oh, jeez. You know, if they've got four copies, then they can dissolve one and keep the other three. But usually they'll only have the one copy. So, it, um, you know, n- nothing could be crazier. So assuming that they don't want to do that, uh, they have the other option of just not letting kids in, 
Uh, the not letting kids in the library? Oh, that's an insane idea. Uh, well, yeah, it is pretty insane. But, but I guess that's... The American Library Association has been putting out literature about it. and then <laughs> uh, We know we can keep the kids' books so long as we only let grown-ups look at them. Oh, my but goodness. But it seems to be the purpose not to let kids run around in our library. <laughs> Well, that's, that makes almost as much sense as like people who make bibs and rattles and stuff um, changing their business and, and, and have a front saying they're catering to people with strange fetishes. <laughs> bibs for adults, you know, diapers for big people, you know. I've been thinking along the same lines. This is crazy. Even without this law, every so often I will see something that is sold as a Christmas ornament where I think, you know, I'll bet... Uh, you know, most people who get that are, are their their kids are trying to play with it, but it's because it's got some small movable part, and they don't didn't want to have to label it. You know, so they just said this is for uh, adults. Parts that can be swallowed or something, and but that will happen much much more. Uh, uh, I would look for the uh, petite uh, and juniors section of <laughs> to expand. Stores. It's gonna for the first time you're going to have a male petite and juniors. Uh, <laughs> dump trucks on the sweaters in the petite section yeah. the clothing store and uh, you'll see a lot of other uh, wink wink nudge nudge type. yeah the, the adult toy industry might take on a more socially acceptable um, you know if you have you know children's toys blocks that are suddenly well, these are for adults well, you're, you're, you know you're going to wonder why the uh, high school amusement section has so many Dora the Explorer logos on it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, do you think that people are just going to try to find loopholes on it? Do you think that's the only way to... Uh, again, um, there will certainly be some of that. And uh, already, um, of course, uh, in the antique and collectible business, uh, you've got a lot of um, uh, warnings saying... Uh, because, of course, some old stuff actually does have lead in it, uh, toy soldiers in particular. Oh, of course. Great old era. Uh, are often made of little butt lead. Uh, so um, conscientious antique dealers would already say, you know, this is a collectible item for grown-ups. This is not to be played with as a toy soldier. And then they would um, be protected then? That, and that should protect them if they have been careful enough about spelling that out. Uh, the, the, the thing that saves them is that genuine old toy soldiers are so expensive that uh, people w- wouldn't let their kids play with them for fear of breaking them. Um, you know, there's too much money sunk into a collection of that sort. So but, if you put on um, your, your label for your handmade uh, dresses for girls, say these are possibly toxic. Yeah, for museum exhibition only, do not let an actual... <laughs> this is to hang on your wall. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for somebody that's kind of feeling kind of overwhelmed right now, but wants... I kind of want to try to leave people on a high note here. Um, <laughs> You know, in the long run, you should not bet that the human race will continue being crazy because it usually comes to its senses and rubs its forehead and says, what was I thinking last night? Uh, <laughs> right. I, you know, I think that's got to happen in, in this area. At some point, the question is whether it happens before or after February 10th. So if I were in one of these businesses, you know, I fully understand not wanting to ship anything or sell anything that is out of compliance with the law, please don't throw it out because imagine the regret you would have if you threw it out and then a week later Congress came to its senses. Mm-hmm. And that might happen. Uh, it's, um, you know, you think of prohibition and it, you, you, you uh, worry because prohibition stayed in effect for, what was it, 15 years or so before they finally repealed it. I don't think it's going to take as long. It might be 15 days this time instead of 15 years. So do you do any crafts? I didn't even ask you. Do you do any? <laughs> you know, I have the worst design sense for this sort of thing.
and I can appreciate it in <laughs> others, and invariably I get the tiles upside down or <laughs> make the knots right or whatever. So, so your crafts would be really dangerous. Not an appreciative audience. <laughs> So maybe you should. This would not. This would be a very bad time for you to start a craft business. Your rhinestones would be falling off. You know, endangering children. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, Walter, I really appreciate your time, and I don't know if there's anything that I didn't ask you or any any final thoughts you'd like to share. Well, if readers want to find out more about it, I have a capture category or tag on my blog, Overlawyered, and. Uh, that will lead you. I did a couple of pieces for Forbes magazine. Which were fantastic, by the way. I really enjoyed uh, those. Oh, thanks. And uh, those make, I, I, I think they make a pretty good introduction for someone who's uh, new to the law and then just wants to figure out why people are so upset about it. A special thanks to Walter Olson for helping us wade through this very confusing Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act. Hopefully this gave you some information, and I'm so glad that there's a stay of of enforcement now. However, I think all of us need to remember that this is not over yet, so none of us should get overly comfortable. Good luck to all of you who are in the handmade business for children. And also, I want to remind you to check out craftsanity.com for information about that Nostalgems giveaway. And a special thanks to Rena Ward at Nostalgems for sponsoring this episode of Craft Sanity. I really appreciate that. Check out her shop at nostalgems.etsy.com. She sells kits and finished pieces, so you're looking for something heirloom style and very pretty, check out her shop at nostalgiums.etsy.com. And if you sign up as a fan on the Nostalgiums Facebook page, you can get in the mix for discounts and specials. I appreciate you taking the time to tune into this episode of Craft Sanity. I will be back to my usual routine. Jennifer Paganelli is the next guest. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guest and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? 